Hey guys, what's up? It's Greg with Find Your Film. Here's the latest hodgepodge. We have two things. Actually, no, not two things, four things. First two are from Eric Holmes, and they are interviews from two documentaries. The first documentary, these are both basically music documentaries. The first one is the Elephant Six Recording Company, and for that he interviewed producer Rob Hatch Miller. And it's the documentary centers on a collective, a sort of, what is it, psychedelic music rock collective who banded together in the 1990s. On their official site, they have actually a Spotify playlist where you can actually get, if you don't know anything about that whole era of music or that whole wave in the early 90s, you can just go on the site, listen to the Spotify playlist. Hopefully some of that music will be right up your alley and then there will be information on where to actually watch this documentary. It was really cool for our Cinematics Facebook group, I believe. I think I've, I think it was fellow member Joseph Bridges is a fan of this era, and he was asking Eric Holmes, "Did you actually see that that documentary?" So I think one of our Cinematics Facebook group members is a fan of that era of music. Now, secondly, there's speaking of era, era of music, there is another music documentary called "Lost Angel: The Genius of Judy Sill," and for that, Eric Holmes interviewed. Who do you interview? Yes, Andy Brown and Brian Lindstrom. Andy Brown and Brian Lindstrom, and they are the filmmakers behind this. And again, I'm going to put show notes where you can find this doc where it's playing. I believe you can buy a ticket right now as of this recording this week. So it's very time sensitive. So check out the, these links regarding Judy Sill. You're wondering who Judy Sill is, was, singer-songwriter from the early to mid-70s, had a very interesting life, and was, was uh, swimming in the circle of all those singer-songwriters of that era. So you might have heard some of her music, and I was looking on Spotify, a lot of her tunes are very popular with music lovers like Eric Holmes. So those these are the two documentaries. Again, yes, The Elephant Six Recording Company and Los Angel, The Genius of Judy Sill. You're going to get those for the first two segments. Finally, Bruce Perky. He knows every single week Bruce watches like 20 movies a week. He watches so many things. Same with Eric. And a lot of times I tell them, Do, we cannot fit this into the show. We can't. We're not going to make this. I want a full 60 to 62 minute show. And the show ends up being 85 to 90 minutes. And I have to cut out so much stuff. And because, and I don't want to cut it, cut it out. I'm just, I'm just very stupid that way. I'm very stupid that way. It should be very value added. Okay. And I want to give as much movie recommendations and movie reviews on this feed as possible. Even if we can't fit it into that one big show on that Wednesday when we record. So this is what the hodgepodge is for. It should have been, I, sh- I should have actually been more diligent about this. I'm glad Bruce Perky has taken the mantle as far as doing these little mini reviews. So for this week, he has two reviews and they are Paramount Plus, that Paramount Plus film Smile. By the way, Smile has grossed over 200 million globally and I really love Smile. I'm going to actually put my interview with Kyle Gallner the stud from Dinner in America and also Smile. I love Kyle Gallner. I'm sure Bruce Perky loves it. I love Smile. It's To me, it's a five-star banger. Love the ending. Love everything about it. And that said, Bruce Perky has his own thoughts. He has a thing or two about a thing or a thought or two about a thought or two about Smile. That's the first review from Bruce. And then secondly, he reviews the Netflix film All Quiet on the Western Front. I still haven't seen it because everyone tell, is telling me how awesome this movie is, how it's one of the best films of the year. And usually when that happens, I just, for some reason, I just don't listen to people and I just wait until the last minute to actually watch this war film. Um, Usually it's a war film. For example, that movie, Come and See. I was looking at Instagram today. 
that Come and See is the highest rated, as of this recording, is the highest rated film on Letterboxd. I still haven't seen it. I still haven't seen Come and See. I know Bruce Perky and Eric Holmes have seen it, and they both love it. And our buddies over at Middle Class Film Class, they also love that film, if I recall, Come and See. But yeah, eventually I'm going to see All Quiet on the Water, on the All Quiet on the Western Front. I, I believe that's the name of the movie. And Smile. I, I really love Smile. Hopefully I'll agree with Bruce regarding his take on All Quiet on the Western Front. Anyways, those, those two reviews will be are at the back end of this podcast. It's a long podcast because of those two interviews. Also, what's interesting is I'm sure some of you know my style of interview. It's great for you guys to listen to how Eric approaches these interviews as well. Because, for example, he'll, he'll basically get a lot of different information that I won't get. Especially, he has a really great question. I believe it was to the filmmakers behind the Judy Sill documentary. What is it called? Lost Angel, right? Lost Angel, the genius of Judy Sill. He asked us toward, he asked them towards the end of the interview about what would they do different if they know now regarding embarking on a documentary. So there's some really great documentary advice in, in that interview. And yeah, so it's a very, I like to say value added a lot, but these interviews are very value added. A, if you're a cinephile and B, if you love just the process of making films and crafting narrative and all that stuff. So take a listen to Eric's interviews, take a listen to Bruce's reviews, hit us up, tell us what you think, and we'll be back in a couple of days because that's when I'm going to put up our weekly Find Your Film episode. Thanks again for supporting us here on Find Your Film. I'm also going to put, I should do this every single weekend. I think I do this every single week. If you want to contact me or Bruce or Eric via email, I'm going to leave our emails there where you can just give us, I don't know, a lot of ish or a lot of praise or maybe neutral or just whatever comments or questions, hit us up. All right, guys. Thanks. And take care. Bye. Hi, Robert. How's it going? Oh, how's, uh, is, uh, I heard, uh, Chad, uh, had a baby. The other yeah, day. His, his wife, uh, gave birth six hours ago. So she was in labor a long, long time. Awesome. Well, um, I'm here with, uh, Rob Hatch Miller, uh, the producer of the elephant six recording company documentary, um, and I guess, I guess we'll start with that. Uh, we were supposed to be here with, uh, Chad Stockflith, uh, the director and, uh, not many people give to, uh, birth two children in one week, but, uh, he did. Um, yeah, so you're here with us. <laughs> congratulations to Chad. Yeah. Um, so, uh, this, uh, I, I guess we'll start with, um, the elephant six recording company what what drew everyone to this this project to tell this story so the project actually came about at the behest of robert schneider of the apples and stereo the project came together uh because robert schneider of the apples and stereo approached the director cb stockfleth more than 12 years ago about making a film about this group of bands that he was um involved in in the 90s so, you know, and, and I became involved more recently in 2020 during the pandemic, uh, deep into the edit, you know, I've made a couple of feature music films before, and this is the director's first project. So he approached me and said, you know, can you help us, you know, get the film finished and out to festivals and hopefully released beyond that. So I've been, I've been part of the film team for two years now, and I was a fan of these bands in the late nineties. And it's been such a pleasure to help tell their story and help show who the people were behind this music. Because I, I don't think I even knew band members' names for these bands, even though I love them. Maybe I knew Jeff Mangum from the Apples and Stereo. Maybe Robert Schneider from 
sorry, Jeff Mangum from Neutral Milk Hotel, and I might have known Robert Schneider's name from Apples and Stereo, but I, I, they weren't like, um, you know, it wasn't like these are the members of the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or some, you know, Pearl Jam or something. Uh, they were kind, they were fairly obscure and the music wasn't about sort of their personalities so much. So, um, it's been cool to, to see who these people were. Yeah. It it looked like it was, uh, looked like it'd be pretty fun to shoot because the, all the people in the collective, they're real creative, real experimental in the way they approach everything. And they just seem like they'd be a blast to hang out with, especially like if you're going to do a, if you're going to do a project over a number of years, you know, it'd probably be good if you're hanging out with good people. Yeah. They're a fun group of, you know, diverse men and women and hilarious, uh, weird, eccentric, oddball artists. And I just, I've never met any of them. I'm going to meet some of them for the first time this week um, because I became involved really in post-production and during the pandemic. So um, it's been cool to get to know them through the footage. And then as we start showing the film at festivals with some of the members of the bands coming, um, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll get some more in-person time. Yeah. Um, when, uh, is there any, uh, I don't know what plans you have as far as release, but is there any plans to like, have like, uh, any of the bands playing while you, uh, show the, uh, documentary? There was, uh, there was one of the descendants, uh, filmage and they had, uh, they, they played the documentary and afterwards they had all the members of all and then the descendants play after, but I think it'd be a great opportunity to do that. Something like that with this, maybe. Yeah, I think that's our hope. Uh, right now, there's no plan for the first three festivals, but you know, I think hopefully the film will be released more widely next year, and we would love to do something like that. I know recently the the movie "Meet Me in the Bathroom" has had a lot of cool um, screenings with like event performances from bands like Moldy Peaches and stuff. Um, if we were going to have, you know, the Apples and Stereo or Circulatory System or some of these other bands play eventually, that'd be fantastic yeah and what what goes into uh i guess uh as a producer what um what's kind of your day-to-day uh as as much as you know uh what what's your day-to-day as far as uh producing a documentary well you know it's different on every project and on this project i became involved after it was already shot so uh a lot of my involvement had to do with the edit of the film. Um, the editor of the film, Greg King is a brilliant documentary editor and a musician himself and a visual artist. Um, he edited my film, other music about a New York city record store. He also edited city of gold, a great documentary about a, a Pulitzer prize winning LA times food critic. And uh, Greg is based here in LA and I'm in LA. The director CB Stockfluff is uh splits his time between Kentucky and Louisiana. So Greg and I were together frequently throughout the pandemic and up till, you know, the last couple of months working on the edit, trying to, you know, make the strongest film possible for the widest audience possible. It was really important to us that this not be like a movie that's made for the fans only. Um, We made a really strong effort to, make it accessible to anybody who maybe only knows one of the bands or doesn't even know any of them. 
Um, so I did a lot of edit consulting, a lot of, you know, looking for more material. A big part of my job on the film was figuring out how do we incorporate Jeff Mangum from Neutral Milk Hotel into the film? Because he is the most well-known member of the collective, but he is a very private person, um, has been very supportive of the film, but has not done any press interviews since 1999, um, including, you know, when he did a two-year-long world tour in 2014. No press whatsoever. No cameras allowed at the shows. Um, so we figured out, you know, how do we take old audio sources of Jeff and take uh, on-stage dialogue from bootleg concert recordings and take sort of unauthorized video recordings of their concerts and weave him into the film to make him feel just as much a part of the story as the people who did on-camera interviews. And really proud of uh, what we were able to do with that. He really comes across and he loved the film and signed off on uh, all the material we used of him. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff like that, figuring out, are we using the right music here? Should we include this other band a little bit? Just sort of trying to strike a balance of representing everybody from this collective in a way that's not, confusing or um you know pushes away the people that aren't fans already yeah one i I think one of the things i like that you kind of brought out in this is uh the different different people uh within the elephant six uh recording company like uh you know they got the people that learn music and they got the people that just kind of feel it out uh then they got the the experimental side of the music and then they got the pop sensibilities of the music it's it's kind of uh illustrates that there's no wrong way to do something you know you can come at it from all angles and sometimes you can mix them up and they they uh, a lot of times come together to weave beautiful things yeah for me the movie really is a celebration of creativity and friendship and our freedom of artistic expression to just sort of like do what you feel like and not necessarily like follow anybody's rules or particular structure you know it's like the great thing about elephant six is all the people together not just one and i think even jeff mangum from neutral milk hotel says in the film you know what made this so special was not me it was all the other people who were adding other things to um you know i wrote the songs but these other people contributed all these other elements that are what make it so great so it's yeah it's about collaboration I think. Yeah. Sometimes you just need someone that, uh, we got the song, but we need someone to bang on a washing machine and just give it that little extra sting to it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's such a, one of my favorite things about music and, and about film, truthfully, you know, people way too often talk about film as if it's something created by one person, but it never is. It's always about a team. It's about a cinematographer working with a production designer and an editor and an actor and a composer and, all these great ideas coming together. That's like what um, the power of artic- artistic collaboration really is in the, in the medium of film too. Um, including in this film where, you know, you have a bunch of people working together, the director and all these interview subjects, this brilliant editor, Greg, um, our producer, Lance Bangs, who contributed all this footage that he shot in the late nineties, 
long before he was like working on Jackass and collaborating with Spike Jones. He was living in Athens, Georgia, little college town, and obsessively filming all these bands in town. Um, we're really lucky that he was there doing that because otherwise the film wouldn't even be able to exist. Yeah. And also, uh, would, um, you got, uh, you got, uh, a, a few, uh, credits of director yourself. Uh, you mentioned other music and the Sil Johnson, anyway, the wind blows, um, and your producing credits, like what kind of, what kind of attracts you to these projects just in general? Like, uh, that, that's, that's what I'm going to spend a couple years on, or that's what I'm going to take this time on. Uh, it's never planned out in advance for me. It's, it's always just some, something shows up and I'm like, Oh, well this, this has to happen. So for this particular film, you know, I saw an edit of it for the first time in 2018 and I just loved it so much. I told Greg, the editor, you know, I love these bands and I love them even more now that I've seen this movie and I tried to get involved right away. So I just kind of get drawn in by things um on all these projects so I, that's part of the reason why i have no idea what i'm going to do next cuz i'm waiting to waiting for the next next uh, bolt of lightning to strike well in that case i won't tell you <laughs> ask you what you're going to do next but uh, i'm also looking here i, I wish i would have saw this before i talked to you today uh, bradley whitford emotional stuntman <laughs> what is that so, and where can i find it uh it's on youtube it's uh I worked at Funny or Die for a number of years, the Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's internet comedy video company. Um, you know, they have, they produced the Weird Al uh, biopic that just came out. Um, oh yeah, that's so great. I, so good. Um, I produced lots of sketch comedy stuff with, you know, UCB people and celebrities. That particular one was, um, it's a it's a piece with the actor Bradley Whitford where, uh, gosh, how do I even explain it? <laughs> he's not a physical stuntman. He's an emotional stuntman. So he comes in and on some of your favorite scenes in movies, uh, it's the, the premise is that it's not really the actor. It's Bradley Whitford, you know, with uh, track marks on his face <laughs> doing the stunt crying and stuff like that. Oh, good. Yeah. That, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to have to go check that out. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. Oh, sorry. Had too much coffee this morning. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, poop. And then what's the the Sil Johnson? Anyway, the wind blows. Uh, that looks like that's a, the, the feature length documentary you did. Yeah. The first film I directed was Sil Johnson. Anyway, the wind blows about a. Uh, Chicago 60s soul singer who was uh, heavily sampled by every hip hop artist imaginable in the 80s and 90s and became sort of famous as like this copyright troll of hip hop who'd sue everybody. And then he had this career resurgence before he passed away. So that film is uh, currently streaming on Tubi. Sweet. I will be checking that out. And I hope everyone checks out Elephant Six Recording Company. Uh, that should be coming out. Uh, I don't know when this interview comes out, but uh, shortly after, I imagine. Um, yeah, it's starting to play at festivals this weekend. Uh, Doc NYC, including a virtual festival option through them, and then Denver Film Festival and Sound Unseen in Minneapolis. Oh, all right. I'm in Colorado Springs. When when's the Denver Film Festival one? Friday and Saturday. 
Oh, this Friday and Saturday? Yeah. I'm going to see if I can get up there for that. Please. Robert, thank you for joining me. And uh, yeah, tell uh, Chad congratulations for me um, on both his film and his uh, actual baby. Thank you. I will. So I'm here with Andy Brown and Brian Lindstrom, uh, directors and uh, writers of uh, Los Angel, the genius of Judy Sill. Um, so first of all, I, I guess because uh, I wasn't familiar with Judy Sill before watching this. Um, and of course, that's not really my, you know, not exactly in the Slayer category. So I don't listen to a lot of that type of music. But uh, um, I get the I get the sense from watching this documentary that she's kind of a uh, maybe uh, has to do with the title, like a lost talent. Uh, someone that uh, was really inspiring. Um, we talked about uh, Elise Guy Blaché. She was like really instrumental in film work, and no one knows who she is. I feel kind of the same way about Judy Sill. Um, what what brought you to this project and to kind of get her voice out there? Andy in two thousand and twelve, I think it was, uh, played for me <clears throat> the BBC video of Judy performing the Kiss, and it just blew me away as he knew it would. Um, and a year later I was finishing up a film and a friend of mine suggested, Hey, you should make a film about Judy Sill. And I was blown away that my friend even knew who Judy Sill was. Uh, but Andy and I started talking about it. And the more we delved into her life, the more it was like, yeah, we, we got to do this. There's just so much here. You know, the, the beauty of her music, the kind of shocking aspects of her personal life and how they strangely fit together um and that that started a nine-year journey that you know brought us to this day yeah with someone like judy sill like how, how do you how do you suppose artists like this not just in music but just in any any sort of uh artistic medium uh people that are really talented always seem to get buried uh because people talk about like the beatles rolling stones you know if you're sticking with music hey dogs <laughs> dogs like i got this one <laughs> But uh, yeah, certain like you know, certain artists they uh, you know, they kind of get lost in time or lost in the ether uh, for one reason or another. And uh, like we talk about, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, like being like, oh, they're the best or the first ever did this. But then if you if you're around in a certain area, you might say that's not true. Actually, it was this band, and no one's ever heard of them. Right. So where did like uh, how do you suppose that how do you suppose that happens? Like I, I guess the you know. Artistic merit obviously isn't egalitarian. Otherwise, that wouldn't be the case. You know, I don't. I mean, you're right. It's so it's 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 kind of impossible to answer why someone resonates in their time or doesn't. Judy's arguably more well known now than she ever was in her lifetime. Um, so her music has resonated after her time, um, and it did in her time. But it just, um, I think, there's just something very dense about it. There's something that in the seventies, there was a certain type of pop music that was popular that she just wasn't going to write those kind of songs. Um, it's just kind of hard to answer. I think though, that given how deep her musical chops were and how deep into the ether of the musical ether, she was able to go and bring out songs that's timeless. And yeah. so we'll, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter that it didn't, well, it mattered to her, but good, yeah. good music, good work will eventually 
find its way to an audience, as Buck Meek in our movie says. I also got to say, I wasn't expecting, uh, not really a heist film, but I, <laughs> I wasn't expecting <laughs> that kind of opening. Uh, but uh, did you know that, like, I'm sure you knew that going in, but did you know that, like, pretty early on? Or was that something, like, when you were doing it? Uh, you know, when you were checking back on our history, it's like, oh, hey, look at this. Yeah, we we knew, you know, that that, that was part of her past. And then we, uh, you know, researched it more heavily and, and kind of fleshed it out. Um, and we were lucky to actually find her, uh, the guy she was living with at the time, Walter Fisk, uh, you know, in a in a junkyard, <laughs> who was able to also kind of uh, help us tell that part of the story. Yeah, but Judy had a a fascinating life, you know, and it's it's really intriguing to kind of look how, you know, she had this unique musical talent, like, you know, as Linda Ronstadt said, she had more musical chops than anyone on the scene except Brian Wilson. Um, and she also had this personal history of, you know, a lot of hard things, you know, so it gave her both like the the talent to express it, but also the willpower and the life experiences to want to make certain statements, if you will, you know, so it's a unique combination of, of both those rare things, the talent and the perspective. And I think that's why this music is so. Oh. A, a lot of the work done for research uh, for this film was actually by other people prior to us in the re-releases of her music. So we had attempt, we both knew it gave us the names of people that we wanted to contact and track down, but it also spelled out this crazy story that you're referring to um so we knew what areas we wanted to explore more yeah you you guys also got some great archive well it's uh audio um archives um i I don't know if it maybe came from a video and you just use audio or whatever but um dude she's quite candid (laughs) stuff she says (laughs) out yeah going to mexico and sticking up my yeah, yeah we'll, we'll leave that part out. Watch the documentary, but uh, she's uh, like you see her like uh, play music, and she looks like you know like this angel singing these beautiful songs, and then you hear her uh, talking in the archival footage, and that must have been a that that must have been a one thing to go through. I'm I'm assuming. Well, we acquired her personal archive, which wasn't much, but it was a box of her papers and and journals about four or five years into the process of making this, which is partly why it takes so long to make these things, because you, if you, you got to treat it like you're a biographer and you need to get the materials. And it took that long. We were self-funding for a while. So we took us a while. It, we early on got a lot of interviews done, but it just took a while to get this material. And once we had that material, we were able then to tell the story in Judy's own voice because it was her writings so some of what you're hearing in the movie is journal entries. That's an actress talking. Oh, okay. But the bulk of it is actually a tape we found of Judy telling her own story, um, an audio tape. And that's become, that was also found around that same time that we got that archive. And we knew at that point we'd be able to, to let Judy tell her own story because we had both her writing and this audio tape. Um, yeah. And that was what we had hoped to be able to do. Because we really wanted Judy to narrate the film as much as possible. You know, we wanted it to be in her words and in her voice and, and even in her hand, you know I mean? In a sense, the film is, 
sort of animated by Judy because her drawings were the inspiration for the animation. Like the one behind you, which she, (laughs) (laughs) thank you, which she um, drew and is um, definitely the inspiration for one of our animations and is a just, I love that painting so much. And she drew it for a friend of hers. Um, the other thing we we were able to do was get the multi-tracks for her second album and the posthumous third album so that we, so that Judy is scoring her own film as well. The, the, the parts that are not deep dives into songs, but have music are actually tracks from Judy's records. Okay. And um, I guess uh, this is just kind of just an overall question as uh, documentarians. What what kind of uh, what, what's your approach to doing documentaries just in general? Um, usually with feature films, you're allowed to like doing a biopic, for example, you're allowed to stretch the truth a little bit. Uh, if you saw the new Weird Al movie, you would see you could stretch the truth all the way if you want. Um, but uh, with the documentary, I think there's usually uh people have an expectation of truth to that. Is there, uh, do you feel a little more responsibility going to a documentary as opposed to like a, maybe a biopic? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's an awesome responsibility to tell the story of someone who's not here any longer. And uh, that's why we were so meticulous about using her journals, her audio tapes of interviews and her words. You know, we wanted it to be as if Judy were making the film. And and adhering as much as possible to facts and truths as and and checking with each other about about well is this fair should we do we is is are we are we um, relying too heavily on this one resource or you know it, it's it you have to have those discussions if you're going to be fair and like I said you treat documentaries should be treated as biographies. I think. I mean, there are creative documentaries that don't that can break rules, but in this particular case, I think it's pretty important to yeah. be reliable for you the ever, audience to believe that what they're getting is true. Do you ever, uh, uh, in uh, putting this documentary together, do you ever like come across like a, I don't know, like a crazy cousin or aunt or something? It's like uh, like get like halfway through the interview and go. Oh yeah, this person's off the rocker. They're definitely not making it. Like everything they're saying is complete <laughs> BS. Or uh, is everyone pretty uh, candid? Or, or on the other side, you have people that just like, uh, you know, maybe they get the interview and they just got their arms crossed the whole time. So like, I'm not giving you nothing. I'm here because they need to be or something like that. Everyone no. was really excited <laughs> to talk about Judy because she, you know, she was a beloved figure, um, and people were really united in the idea of like, Hey, we want to get her music out there. So there was really no um, reluctance of, of, on anyone's part. Um, and they were grateful of, that we were yeah. doing it because they loved her music and her so much. They were just happy that she's going to start getting some, the recognition she didn't get in her yeah, life. In terms of like, uh, you know, if someone's kind of unstable or saying, you know, unkind or untrue things, uh, you know, usually you're able to kind of weed that out in a telephone interview that would happen before the actual interview. So, but we cast a wide net. We talked to everyone we could, we could find. Yeah. And I, I uh, guess uh, uh, one final thing, Um, just uh, start uh, starting on documentaries in general, like uh, what goes into the process of that as far as um, uh, we're going to find what subject we're going to do. And then now this is a subject we want to do. Now we've got to start finding people like, it just seems like a 
like you, you think documentaries oh they just shoot people doing interviews and put it together but the, yeah. the but the uh legwork and groundwork like you can't build a set and just go there you have to travel around find people find people has to be yeah. insanely hard to do but just like in general what's it like to make a documentary in two well, seconds one, go <laughs> just, this one was really uh research intensive you know we had to really immerse ourselves in in judy's life uh and and track down anyone we possibly could and it's another reason it took nine years yeah. to make. Um, yeah. Not because not that we were working on this every day for nine years, but it just it had to be spread out because of we were self funding because of COVID because you know lots of different things happened. But um, in many ways, it's it turned. I think it was fortunate it took that long because it allowed us to get everything we wanted to get, as it turned out. So I'm sure there might be some other stuff out there we missed. But it's not because we didn't try. Um, so, yeah, it just it just you have to really be passionate about what you're doing um, because it's probably going to take you longer than you think to do it. Yeah, if, is, if uh, you want to make a documentary, the, I'm saying. Oh yeah, is that any of the roadblocks that you had that that made it go nine years? Is that anything that you can learn from on the next one? Like, oh yeah, we're not doing that, and we're not doing that again, or. Uh, we're going to do that differently. That that sort of thing. <laughs> Having more money to start with. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that solves I mean, everything. <laughs> it does. It would shorten the time for sure. I think it. You know, you would you would want to be able to do most of your interviews at once if you can. Yeah. Then you want to hire a researcher or you know yourself do a lot of research. Um. <clears throat> That you're doing the whole time, but you got to really do that early on. If you, I'm just saying, if you want to shorten the time it would take to make a documentary, so. But still, it's going to take you longer than you think if you do it. If you're going to do it right, I think. Yeah. Well, but it's kind of a double-edged sword because, like, if if we would have known like how much money it would really take to make this when we started out, <laughs> it would have been so intimidating. I don't think we would have started. You know, I mean, there there really is something to be said for that kind of, as Judy would say herself, onwards and upwards, fuck the odds. You just kind of jump in and go for it, knowing that down the line, hopefully, you will create something that will attract all the resources necessary, but you don't necessarily have to have them right when you start. No, you don't have to. And it's probably better not to know how much it's going <laughs> to cost at first. You're right. Well, uh, Andy, real quick, uh, what what's your dog's name? This is Slim. Come here. Come here. This is Slim. Hey, Slim. And he's a crazy Aww. little dog. He's a crazy little dog. Say hi. Hi, Slim. And he loves Judy Sill. <laughs> awesome. Well, Brian, Andy, thank you for joining me. And thank you uh, so Slim, much. Slim, you too. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. Hi, Slim. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having Bye. that picture up, too. Love it. Oh, yeah. That's yeah, a beautiful picture. Well, this is another non-pod review. Uh, I'm trying to do a few of these every week, if I have time, for movies that don't quite make the pod. In this case, I'm going to be doing a non-pod review of Smile, just released on Paramount Plus, directed by Parker Finn. I believe it's the first time feature for Parker Finn, starring uh, Sosie Bacon as Rose Cotter, 
Jesse Usher, I think you know him from The Boys as Trevor, uh, are one of our favorites, Kyle Gallner as Joel, and then a few other actors. Uh, let's see, uh, Cal Penn, probably the most other most famous person, and Rob Morgan, which we really love. Uh, they are both in smaller roles in this movie. I saw a lot more interesting stuff going around this movie to try to promote it, uh, especially there were things like, I guess, paid amateurs or... I guess it wouldn't be amateurs that are getting paid. Um, people getting paid to be at like baseball games and stuff and stand and smile and look creepy. So that we haven't seen that kind of uh, marketing for a horror movie in a while. All that being said, I've heard almost totally positive reviews of this movie from friends. I know either solid to great um, with not really much negative at all. So I was pretty excited to see this pop up on Paramount Plus. So I still have that service. I don't even remember how we got it, but I have it. So I said, I'm going to check out Smile. Basic concept. It looks kind of like one of those uh, creepypasta sort of movies where something creepy is happening. This is all I knew basically going into it. Uh, people are you know, seeing someone that smiles in a really creepy way, and then that either curses them or is a harbinger of death or something like that. Anyway, Going into it, it the, the basic idea is Rose is this um, psychiatric doctor, and she gets a brand new patient. She's been wor- overworking herself, you know, kind of to the point of exhaustion. She gets a brand new patient. The patient uh, seems to be having some sort of a break. The patient very quickly tells her that she is seeing things, and she's seeing something that looks like people, but really aren't people. And when she sees this thing, it, it, it looks like a person with a smiling, grinning face. And when that happens, uh, you know, it terrifies her and is freaking her out. She says she's going to die. And then within a couple minutes of meeting this person, uh, Rose is confronted with the, this person having a break, smiling in the same way she just described. And then the smiling patient Uh, takes a piece of a broken pot and kills herself in front of Rose. Uh, I guess it's a spoiler, but that happens in the first five, 10 minutes, kicks off all of the action of the movie. And from that point going forward, we are going to undercover the mystery of what the smile is. And uh, I guess the bottom line for this is I was really pretty highly disappointed in this movie. I did not think it was nearly as effective as most people are thinking it is. First of all, I'm hearing a lot of comparisons to It Follows. I get that. Uh, I don't want to quite say why, because I'm not going to spoil it. But there's an aspect of how this, you know, scary thing is, I guess, transferred from person to person. Um, But I think of all the movies that this represents a comparison to, I guess I would say The Ring. There are point-to-point comparisons to the ring, even though there's no tape, there's no nothing like that. But there's a lot of points where I feel like this is highly inspired by the ring in both form and in the way it's presented to us. Um, but I love the ring a lot. I love Ringu a lot. Uh, I did not love this a lot. The problem I have with this movie is, first of all, it's the kind of horror movie that I do not dig. It's sort of more in that conjuring jump scare. Hey, you know, something's creepy is about to happen. And then, then really big music sting and something you know pops out at you or something really loud is like, you know, hits the soundtrack to get you to jump. And that's it. It's not, to me, it was not really creepy at all. Uh, I know that the 
the smiling faces and all those kind of scenes that they give us are supposed to highly creep us out. But for me, I uh, unfortunately found myself kind of laughing at a lot of this movie, finding it kind of ridiculous and, and silly. So question, why, 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 why? Well, trope upon trope upon trope upon trope in this movie. Now, if you're just going in for a silly horror movie that'll make you jump and make you scream a couple times and you don't care about tropes, dive on in, you'll have a good time. But for me, it kind of drove me crazy. Uh, examples of a few of the things. The upside down trope. We are seeing this way too much. Uh, Ariaster, Ariaster has used that uh, to great effect in both of his movies and a lot of other uh, movies have been using it, especially lately. I see it as, as, as very overused, kind of like the drone shots have become overused. The starting out right side up and then turning upside down trope. Well, they do that at least a couple times in this movie, maybe three times. There's way too many obvious smile things around her, which are supposed to, I guess, be clever or supposed to be like, oh, look, look, she has a mug with a smiley face on it. Oh, look, look, look on the wall there. That thing has a smile, but it's like, okay, I got you. And then <laughs> she keeps, every time a jump happens, they make sure they give her like a glass or something in her hand so she can drop it and smash it just to add to the, uh, I guess, excitement of the scene to the point that the other character in the scene <laughs> points out that she broke something again, you know, almost to say like, you know, why, why are we doing this? Um, there are way too many landlines in this movie just so they can have this really loud phone ring that's almost identical to the ring. Uh, I don't know how many people have lots of landlines anymore, but apparently in this movie it was written in 2006 or something. I don't know. The cat. I'm so sick of movies where you see a pet, a cat or a dog usually, and they really focus a lot on how our main character loves this cat or dog early in the movie. I'm not going to spoil it and tell you what might happen to that cat or that dog I think you're smart enough to figure it out because it's a terribly stupid and weak trope and it's used and telegraphs to a point that's supposed to be a highly shocking moment in this movie. And I was just like, well, okay, obviously that's going to be that. And yep, it was that. And then <laughs> the last thing, and, and once again, I won't say it's a terrible movie, but definitely it, it really annoyed me. The last thing is the overall arc of the movie doesn't make sense either. Um, we got this idea that what's happening to her with the smile and this curse or whatever it is, is slowly causing her to go the way the person that she first meets, it went, you know, we're seeing her, you know, unravel and become more and more unhinged. And the people around her think that she's going crazy. It's not really a spoiler. That's just kind of where you see the movie is trying to show her going to the point that I don't know, a third of the way into the movie, she should be at a spot where people are seriously considering sh whether she should be, you know, involuntarily committed. But then when this movie wants to become an unraveling of the mystery, you know, and she teams up with a, a character, by the way, that's the best part of this movie. When she teams up with that character and it becomes a little bit of unraveling of mystery, she's lucid fully lucid through that middle portion of the movie where she's unraveling the mystery. She doesn't have any problems hardly at all. She can just totally function and communicate and make lots of sense. But then when that mystery has been solved, which is very simple to unsolve, it's not anything too spectacular. It's not as fun as it is like in the ring, the U S version. Anyway, once that middle section is done, she's right back to being 
you know, unhinged again, and people are all fearing for her and for themselves because of the way she's acting. Rightly so. Uh, so that, once again, it's just like, why isn't she not unhinged in the middle of the movie? Because it, the movie doesn't need her to be unhinged because the movie wants her to have a little mystery to solve. So anyway, I wish... Oh, and then the final act where all the, the, the quote, I don't know, evil or monster or whatever it is, is revealed, I found the most laughable of all, and I definitely wasn't scared. I thought it was pretty silly for me. It's all about tone. I love a lot of silly movies, but in this movie, it wanted to think it was freaking you out, like somebody telling you a creepypasta that you think is not very creepy. <laughs> That's why this worked on me. Anyway, uh, I guess the final say on that would be I'd probably go two and a half out of five on this movie. It's This is going to definitely be three and a half to four for a lot of people. But if you're like me and you don't really go for those kind of jump scare, conjuring, those kind of style of movies, then this probably will hit you pretty mildly as well, uh, just as a way to decide how you would fall on this. Anyway, it's fairly f- easy to find if that's what you want to check out. And uh, if you want to hear more weekly reviews of brand new movies, not movies that are a couple months old like this, check out our Find Your Film podcast in all the places you look for podcasts, or also listen to Cinematics. I would love to hear what you all think. I have a feeling I'm in the minority on this one. Hey, everybody. Uh, Every so often, we will have some standalone reviews that don't quite make it to either cinematics or find your film and this is one of them and this is the new-ish release all quiet on the western front a uh, brand new edition of the very very famous story it is available now on netflix from 2022 directed by edward berger or edvard berger i don't know german name so the w's may be v's this, uh, I've never seen any of the All Quiet on the Western Front versions that have been put out there. Famously, the 1930s version, I believe, won an Academy Award Best Picture. But that was a Western production. And then I think there's another one made in the late 70s. I have not seen that one as well. This one is a German production, which I believe is the first time that this story has been produced as a film uh, in German by Germans, uh, which makes sense because the original book is based on a German soldier's experience in World War I, which I did not know. I did not know much about the story, even though it's very famous. I knew the title. I didn't really know the story of All Quiet on the Western Front. Everyone will probably immediately think of the recent movie, 1917, obviously also a epic war movie in the World War I conflict. That one most famously had the, you know, the trick of kind of trying to be a one shot or look like a one shot movie. And I think the big difference right out of the gate between this one and 1917 is that 1917 is a little more action thriller oriented and All Quiet on the Western Front is much more of a, um, you know, a look into the horrors of war and the injustice of war and all that kind of stuff that you get with movies more like, uh, you know, platoon or saving private Ryan, those kind of things where you're really more into the looking more for the experience of the basic soldier in war and how it affects them and how it kind of changes their view of humanity in the world. Uh, I guess another one that I saw recently, uh, the big red one would be a really good comparison too. 
both that movie and this movie really do follow kind of wide-eyed, enthusiastic, but nervous, uh, you know, green recruits, and then follows them kind of on their career in the war. Now, this movie specifically is pretty great. And one of the better war movies I've seen in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years. So definitely it stands out as a pretty high quality production uh, on Netflix. And it can be hard to find those. So, you know, you can really can dig into Netflix and, and get bogged down in so many series and so many mediocre to okay movies that it's hard sometimes to discover a, a new movie that pops up on there as a basically as a uh, premiere on that service and know that it's going to be a great movie. I think this is one. I think you should look at look into it, especially if you are interested in um, quality war movies. Now, the basic concept of this is you follow four friends as they enter the war. They are very, very enthusiastic, as I kind of mentioned before. The main one that you're following is Paul, and it's played by Felix um, Kamener. Kamener, I don't know how to say the name exactly. It's German, of course. Uh, oh, oh, by the way, so this is in German with subtitles, but like many Netflix movies, you do have a dubbed version available if you want it. I dipped into it for a few minutes to see uh, what it was like, because sometimes they're very jarring and, and really will take you out of the movie. It seems to be a very high quality dub. So if you really, really can't handle subtitles, that may be an option for you if it will keep you watching the movie instead of avoiding it. So you get to Paul and immediately he, you know, he's, he fakes his a signature of his parents to get him in the, the war. He's 17 at the time. He's that enthusiastic. He doesn't want to be left behind by his friends. Uh, immediately they, you know, get the rally cry they go, you know, line up, they get their uniforms, and right out the gate, when he gets his uniform, you kind of get the payoff of this opening sequence. There's an opening sequence where you see a little bit of battle, you see a little bit of the, you know, kind of what they're heading into, and then kind of through the credit sequence, you have this long, uh, this long kind of montage following a bunch of uniforms being taken off the dead, washed recycled, re-sewn, and brought back for the new troops. So that when Paul and his group are all getting the uniforms, they hand the uniform to Paul, he looks down at it, and there's a name sewn into the collar, and he says, well, this, this, I must have someone else's uniform, that's not my name. And they're like, oh, and they rip that, you know, they rip it off. And they say, oh, no, no, that they must have been the wrong size for this uniform and they gave it back to us, you know, which of course they don't want to say <laughs> we're giving out all of these uniforms of people who have died and giving them to you now. So you can die basically the idea of it. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the whole plot of it, obviously just to say that the production is very, very high quality. It's very epic, not a ton of CGI. It looks like it's pretty practical, mostly throughout. There's a couple things. Uh, there's some fire effects at one point that are definitely CGI. But overall, it, it looks pretty, pretty good. And uh, the as you would guess, the World War One, you know, trench warfare and stuff that you see in here is, is pretty harrowing. And right out of the gate, you know, you probably within the first 15 or 20 minutes are, are the four people we're following uh, immediately just discovered that they didn't know what they were getting into. And, and it just kind of goes from there. There are at least three or four kind of standout battle scenes, but there's one 
really, really extended one in the middle of the movie, which really stands up there as one of the better battle scenes I've seen definitely in recent war movies and in, in pretty much in war movies in general, it's very, very, very good. Uh, and at one point, I don't want to get into the details of it. Let's just say that it's, it's very good. And above and beyond all of that, you get to slowly connect as you would expect with your main soldier and some other characters. Cause you do have like in most war movies, you have some downtime and then the downtime, you get to know more about the characters so that when things start going awry, as you might expect, uh, you're more emotionally attached to them. And the last thing that I'll say about this movie is it does do a couple little breakaways from the main storyline, which of course are the main soldiers in the battle and waiting for battle, basically those two events. Uh, it does skip away from that at a few times and you get to see small sequences where you have negotiators trying to negotiate armistice and you have some of the more removed, uh, you know, generals and, and whatnot and see how detached and how really the, the main soldiers in the story are literally nothing less, nothing more than just numbers and cannon fodder. And, you know, is it on the nose a little bit? Maybe, but it, it works. Uh, I would say well worth your time, very effective. It does the kind of sobering things you would expect of a great war movie. Uh, it doesn't pull its punches. Uh, definitely it will, it will be violent and hard to watch in certain parts. If you're, uh, more, if you're into more, I guess, light fare, you don't, <laughs> you can't handle the gore and stuff, but if you can handle something like saving private Ryan or Schindler's list, those kind of things, then you should be on board for something like all quiet on the Western front. And I would say, go check it out. That being said, if you haven't already, go check out our other main podcasts where we review four, five, six movies a week. Um, Find Your Film is weekly, and at this point, Cinematics is bi-monthly, with uh, Eric and I on one of those, and then Anderson on the other, and Greg on both. And if you do watch All Quiet on the Western Front, we would love to hear what you thought of it, and if you agree with me, or if you think it wasn't everything I said it was going to be.